0: When you're trying to create change, you can change outcomes, you can change your process, and you can change your identity. And I think part of effective habit development is learning how do you reshape your identity. And a lot of that identity is wrapped into the stories that we tell ourselves. Do I really look like a guy?
1: Hello. Welcome back. Welcome to the Up Close in Personnel Podcast Show. I'm your host, Alex Brown, Director of Recruiting Rice University. And thank you for tuning in. As always, be sure to do your part to grow the show. That means subscribing, rating, sharing with someone you know. We are in fall camp mode right now, but that is the case all across the country. You know, we're in the thick of things, early mornings, late nights. I appreciate all of your patience with me on and the podcast because it will get tougher as we get into the season, but I'm really excited about this week's guest and the future guests coming up on the show. Before we talk about who I brought in and why and some of the things we covered, quick mention of our sponsor, War Room. War Room is the all-in-one platform that will take your recruiting and team management to the next level. Used by teams in every Power 5 conference all the way down to the high school level, they have packages that will take your program, to wherever you need to go, logistically, recruiting-wise, database management, team communications, you name it, they've got it. To find out more information, please reach out to Moose Bingham at 801-808-7754, or just go to www.collegewarro.com for a free demo today. Now, this week's show is a couple months in the making as I connected with this guy, over the summer after following and seeing some of the awesome posts that he was putting out on social media. And that is Zach Brandon. He's the mental skills coordinator for the Arizona Diamondbacks. We covered a lot in this conversation, but at the core of the show was a singular theme. And that was that while physical ability sets the bar for what we're capable of, it's the mental skills that allow us to reach that peak performance and how consistently we can do that. Zach's mission with the Diamondbacks is, as he said it in the show, to build a plan for the mental skill development throughout the entire organization to help every person in the building reach their peak performance. He brought up the need to decode and breed trust throughout the organization in order to leverage that opportunity, how to do that at a high level, what the onboarding process looks like for an MLB player and other pro athletes. And how to evaluate the mental makeup of prospects during the draft process. We talked specifically questions that they ask during the draft process, how they interview players, how they pull out those really, really important values and those really, really important character traits that are sometimes difficult to quantify. And at the end of the day, I think the big takeaway and the thing that we closed with is just the importance of mindfulness pre and mid performance. It was a really, really fun conversation. It was something that I really geeked out about. I hope you enjoy it. It has a lot of application to both coaches and players. So without bearing the lead anymore, let's flip over to my conversation with Zach Brandon. Just hit a button, Morty. Give me a beat. Oh, man. Okay. All right. Um. Zach, welcome to the show. Yeah, I appreciate you having me, Alex. Been looking forward to this. Hey, you've been traveling all over the uh, the country with the season. Um, where are you at in the world right now? And, and kind of talk to us about your role with the Diamondbacks as their mental skills coordinator. Yeah, yeah. You've, you've caught me actually at a rare time. I feel like at this
0: stretch of the year where I, I actually am home at the moment. However, we'll be on the road here in a few hours with the team. Um, you know, I'm I'm really fortunate to get to do um, what I get to do on a daily basis. So, for those who who may not be familiar, a title perspective, it's it's mental skills coordinator. But really, um, my my main Cliff Notes job is is to design and implement our mental skills program for our players, our coaches, our staff, kind of across all levels of our organization. So from top to bottom. Um, so. You know, for those that are familiar with professional baseball, that's a there's no shortage of people involved in that. You know, we've got about 200 or so minor league players um, across a variety of different levels, and then obviously we have our major league club as well. So, um, you know, that's kind of my my day to day is is constantly trying to figure out how we can move the needle for our players from kind of a mental performance standpoint, and, and ultimately uh, we we will often say that. You know, physical ability kind of sets the bar, right, at what you're maybe capable of. But it's it's mental skills, it's the mental side of it that's going to determine how close you get to that bar and how consistently you can play there and perform there. So, uh, in a nutshell, maybe that's what I would first open with as what my role looks like.
1: You know, and I've listened to you on a bunch of different podcasts that, that you've been brought on because there's a bunch of high performer podcasts out there, and it's really crazy to me that in and I love the fact that it's this way that you work with the staff all the way down to the players so how does your message change or maybe not change to staff versus player
0: yeah I think you touch on a really key thing for us because one of the first things that we were really intentional with when we started was telling coaches that one everything that we do is going to be in partnership with them you know at the end of the day whether a coach signed up for it or not all coaches are mental skills coaches you know like those those types of conversations happen so often organically in just day-to-day work with players and so for us you know we we have we're really fortunate we have three full-time mental skills coaches and one uh, one part-time as well so we're we're not able to be there every single day um, at every affiliate, at every level um, our coaches are. And so they're the boots on the ground in the trenches. And so we, we really rely heavily on them. I think something that we've seen in the last year or so for us is trying to be more intentional about how do we help coaches become better mental skills coaches? Because again, those are things that are happening regularly. And and if we can't be there, we want to empower them to kind of have some of those conversations. And then also there's, we rely on them at times for, you know, filtering players to us, you know, as, as we have work, as we work with players, um, sometimes we work directly through them. And then sometimes we have players come to us because of a recommendation for a coach. We know coach may have more trust with that individual. So we leverage the coach, um, just to communicate that and at the end of the day like I don't think any of us have an ego we don't care who shares the message Um, we don't need any credit we just want to make sure the player gets what they need from whoever so that way they can help you know kind of their game and as the and the teams
1: I like what you said about leveraging the right person for it and how it's based on trust and I've heard you talk about when you first started the department, you spent that whole first year just kind of laying the groundwork and kind of building the relationships to gain that trust. And and that's an easy thing to say like, oh, I'm just gonna focus on relationships. And you say it broad brushing, but what did that actually look like? What were the steps that you and your staff took to kind of, you you become part of the team and the team get to know you before you just gave them tactics and strategy?
0: Yeah, yeah, I I think it kind of started with decoding trust a little bit and understanding what builds trust or what breeds trust. Uh, Part of that one is connection uh, for us. And so through that occurs through relationship building. So I think a lot of that is probably what you've maybe heard or I've touched on previously and other conversations about just getting to know our staff, trying to learn from their experiences. I mean, we had coaches that have spent more time in professional baseball between playing and coaching, you know, than I've been on this planet. So it would be extremely foolish of me to not leverage their expertise and and wisdom. So early on, it was, it was really asking a lot of questions. Somebody asked me the other day, if you were to to help a mental skills or help turn somebody into a mental skills coach, what would be two or three initial steps? And the first one I said is like, learn to ask really good questions. I think that's very pertinent to the work that we do. And, and we did a lot of that with our coaches early on to, to help foster those relationships and that and, and connections. The other side of trust too is, is competence. Um, at the end of the day, like you gotta know your stuff, right? Like you gotta be able to offer something. And so for us, um, we, we really embrace kind of that lifelong learner mentality. Like we have to constantly be learning and growing. There's so many different facets within baseball and, and there's an appreciation for all those facets more so than ever before between analytics, uh, biomechanics, how the skill acquisition to the ins and outs of the game between the lines to the mental side and all, all the other things. And so we don't necessarily have to be the experts in all of that, but we do need to know who the experts are and leverage them to to, um, to learn more. So we, we try to have enough knowledge where we can use the common language. I think that's huge, we talk about culture lately. And, and for us, a big piece of that is having continuity and a shared common language. And so um, for us, I think that's one of the ways in which you, you can help breed some of that trust is starting to speak the language. Obviously, we we know what we know, and we know what we don't know. Um, but I think between those two things, those were areas that we tried to be kind of really intentional with early on
1: um, to kind of help breed some of that trust. When you, when you talk about that common language, I, I think that's so huge with what you said about like how big departments are, right? There's the personnel side, there's the coaching side, the player development side, strength conditioning, the, the medical team, your team, and you just had the, the MLB draft. How do you mesh all those together with like what you're saying, the common language? Where do you fit into that equation from, from an evaluation and like building the team standpoint? Yeah, yeah. I I think, you know, one thing we were
0: fortunate, we just went through our onboarding process for the new guys that we just brought into the org. And what was cool, within a matter of the first few days of them being on site, they were introduced to all the different resources and people that are going to be part of their journey forward with us in our organization. So that certainly included. You know our leadership, our front office staff that included our coaches, um, coordinators, um, the on the field staff includes medical, um, our nutritionist, uh, and included mental skills. So there was a lot of different people that were part of that. So really early on, we wanted to set the expectation that um, the work that we were doing. This is we're all pieces of the puzzle, right? And and for each guy, we we really try to help guys know that our approach is very individualized. And so um, whatever piece of the pie is for you uh, on the mental side, it may look different from somebody else, but we try to just set that expectation really early on and, and help them see that to, again, be a really high performing athlete. The mindset is, is critical to that, you know, regardless of what percentage you want to give that and, And I think what we've seen in in society, in baseball and in general, like people are more open than ever before about the the mental side of the game, which is great. Where I think there's opportunity for improvement and where we're going next is like, well, you can train it, you know, you can get better at it. You don't have to be sick to get better. You know, you can actually nurture some of these skills proactively versus, um, you know, being reactive when things go south. So... I think a lot of that was in our messaging early on, um, and how, you know, much like you, you work with a strength coach because you want to get faster, bigger, stronger, more flexible, regardless of your physical fitness level, regardless of your mental fitness level, either are opportunities for you to get better. So that way, um, you can put it all together on the field. So, um, I think a lot of that just came early on setting those expectations and then it's going to be the constant nurturing for uh, for uh, from us to help players develop that
1: over time. Well, it's like, who are your go-to people in specific areas for their growth so that they know, okay, if I got this issue, I'm going to go to this person. Um, and it's funny that you say like the, that uh, people are more open to just the, the conversation, the dialogue. And I've, I've seen you post on LinkedIn and Twitter. It's like, look, like this is very real. This is very important to what's going on. And what was funny is like right when we were jumping on the call, I got a notification on LinkedIn. It said like, here are different ways in the professional workplace that you can use mental health. And it's and it's so it becomes almost cliche, like um, the uh, like the word culture um, when, when you're talking about team building. But can you talk about how that might match up with the fact that this generation is the as you said, like the most risk averse generation um, in history? Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Gosh, this is a timely question. I was talking to one of our major league players about this this morning that, you know, we're, we're living in this world where there's honestly a ton of comfort, right? Like we, we've created a lifestyle and environment just day to day for all of us in society where at the end of the day, a lot of our daily stressors, they don't look any anywhere near what they did many years ago. And A byproduct of that though is like the brain really hasn't evolved a lot our brain still is a like is always searching for threats always searching for ways it might feel unsafe and and that's led to you know we have more information now than ever before more resources than ever before and yet people are more anxious than ever before which i think is a really ironic kind of paradox there and so um, I think a lot of it has been just helping people understand that, um, yeah, it's great to have all of these resources and everything and they're all available, but it's it's kind of up to the individual too, to take ownership and to actively utilize those things and understand that what parts of their, their lifestyle um, are they not productively or creating healthy habits around you know at the end of the day like being an elite performer that's a 24 7 commitment right like there, there's no time off to that now it doesn't mean you have to be eat sleep breathing football or baseball or anything like that but know that all of your decisions day to day whether they're between the lines or they're off the field they ultimately do influence your performance so um, I probably veered off of where your question was but I think when it comes to kind of the the current narrative around mental health and well-being, again, it's great to talk about it. Now it's, there's, there's more layers to it. One let's proactively get better at it and improve it and, and, and develop some um, psychological wellness and flexibility. And three, at the end of the day, it's up to you to take ownership of that. Right. And you can't say, Oh, the, I didn't have access to this. No, like that, That's not good enough anymore because now there's, there's people out there that can help. There's books out there. There's videos like there's so much information, which is obviously overwhelming too, but um, you can't say that, Oh, well, I've never had this before. Well, you do. It's, it's also up to you to take ownership
1: of that. Yeah. And, and for you, when your first ever mental coach is your dad, can you talk about what you learned from your dad, growing up, playing ball, starting to realize your dream of playing college baseball. What are some things that you took away from him and how did that kind of lead you onto the path that you're on?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I I think one, just an appreciation for that side of the game. You know, I think like it's really hard to improve something that you're not aware of to some extent, you know, or it's hard to take responsibility for things that you're not aware of. And so, um, I'm grateful for from kind of a young age. he didn't always use the, a lot of the terms that I may use now or the language that I, I use within mental skills or sports psychology, but he did give me an appreciation for how you carry yourself from a mindset standpoint and what kind of can come into that. And so I think about that now with with players as well. Um, at the you know we we did an exercise recently where we We looked at, so in baseball scouting, you have the 20 to 80 grade scale is kind of what they use to scout players. And, um, 80 is the top, you know, it's the elite. And, um, for us, we kind of asked ourselves like, what's an 80 grade player look like? Um, and, and a piece of that for us is awareness. Awareness is really essential. It's, it's awareness of yourself. It's awareness of situations And then it's also opponent awareness. So those three facets really comprise awareness. And and I'm grateful that, um, you know, kind of from an early age, being just exposed to that conversation gave me an appreciation for it. And, and as I got older, I started to learn that, oh, there's actually these tools out there to help you in those areas. You know, a lot of it comes down to like focus, um, and so for us, that's, that's a really integral piece to the work that we do with our players. It's oftentimes tied back to focus. And, uh, and I think that's something that he always kind of instilled in me just through how we, we practice, not just through conversations, but
1: even how we train. Yeah. It, that's really cool that you're able to kind of tie it back to that, especially with your dad and, and now tying it into what you do. And it, when I kind of, read about it and, and heard about kind of your relationship with him. It reminded me of mine because the way my dad was on the, on the rides home from games, it was, he would not initiate the conversation unless I asked him to. And it was this weird thing. And I, I would get mad because I was like, no, like I need you to tell me what I was doing wrong. Like I need to know. And he's like, are you sure? Like, are, are you sure you want to hear this? Right? Cause I'm like 11 or 12 how do you approach those conversations with MLB players, right? Because they have an idea uh, of, of what works for them. And like you said, you know, everybody's different in terms of what they need from a mental skill standpoint. It's kind of like different batting styles or different alignments or, or, or or what have you, you know, from a technical standpoint, Um, how do you approach guys that, that have been pros for multiple years and you're, you're trying to meet them where they're at? Yeah. Um,
0: Great, great question. I think part of it is, is taking kind of a a student mindset toward it, you know, or, you know, to borrow from, um, you know, there's like that white belt mentality that's the beginner's mind and being curious. Like, I think that's, that's something that I, I think back to a lot. And as I said earlier, I think asking questions. So for some of our guys, um, you know, our older players, I love asking them questions about how they think about things, their approach. And, and sometimes, yeah, it ties into a conversation to help them. Sometimes, too, it's me getting some advice, some suggestions for guys that we have that are a little bit younger in our system. And so I, I will always ask, you know, I'll often go up and be like, hey, we have a player struggling with X in the minor leagues? How have you navigated this? Um, I I, sh- I asked this the other day, we were, we were talking a little bit about, um, you know, to be a major league baseball player and to get to the highest level in your profession, you don't just get there following the crowd, right? Like you gotta be, there's gotta be something about you that's a little uncommon. Like no one just gets there following, doing the things that everybody else does. And so I asked some guys some questions around like, what do you do that others don't, you know, what's something that you feel like you do that the majority of people don't. And it was actually really insightful, like got some really cool insights into how some of our players think there was one player in particular, he gave a really interesting response. He said in the minor leagues, I had the best season of my professional career. He's like, it was my best average, best power. And a coach came up to me afterward and said at the end of the year, and he said, look, you have the ability to be a professional baseball player. However, your current swing isn't going to be what gets you there. Like you got to actually make some swing changes. And he said that that's something that he felt like he did that many other people wouldn't like you ha- he had a long history of success and yet he was willing to take a risk he was willing to do something for that long-term gain, even though he knew maybe in the short term, it was going to be a, a step or two backwards. And that to me was a really eye-opening comment. Like I, cause I think we, we have that sometimes where players have gotten to professional baseball um, by a product of their success, by a product of things that they've done. They found things that have worked for them. And yet, we also have some good insights into what are characteristics of the elite and the guys that get to the highest level. And some guys will have to make some adjustments along the way. So being willing to take those risks is, I definitely believe unique and and sometimes very uncommon. So um, all this to tie back in, I think asking those questions to those players, learning from them um, and just getting a gauge. I think sometimes rather than me come in and suggest something immediately, I'll ask a question and I keep track of it. And then three weeks or a couple months go by and they say they're struggling with something. Well, remember when you told me about X and that, that's what you were doing. Like, sometimes I feel like I'm a professional reminder. That's my my role. (laughs) And I think a lot of that is rooted in questions and and letting players be the experts on themselves.
1: And, It also kind of helps them feel heard when you repeat something that they might've told you in confidence. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And selfishly, like I'm kind of more on the personnel and scouting side. This is a show we've had a lot of people involved in building teams and building rosters and a lot has gone around evaluating, recruiting um, those steps and processes. And I'm curious, because it's such an important aspect of peak performance, right? The mental aspect, the mental makeup, the character of somebody. How do you evaluate that on a young person that maybe still hasn't fully formed their identity of, of self? Maybe they're still not fully matured or confident in, in who they are as a player in person, and, and they're still finding their way. Maybe they're, they're talented enough to play for you. But if you judge them right now in this, you know, point in time, that's not going to be who they are in 5 years from now. What what are some key questions that you ask in the evaluating process and the interview process that kind of uncover maybe their future best self? Yeah, yeah,
0: that's a great great question again relatively timely with the draft that we we kind of completed. I think I think one thing that's an important starting point is is kind of as I mentioned earlier Asking yourself and identifying those attributes or characteristics of elite players like what does it really take to be an elite you know quarterback to be an elite wide receiver tackle whatever um, in thinking baseball it's asking yourself those things and decoding that a little bit going through and figuring out what goes into that and I think um, I, my guess is a lot of the things that other teams in professional baseball are looking for you know mirror our own to some extent. I think part of it is knowing that um, certain characteristics and attributes that are probably more trainable than others. And that's an important distinction too. Also, keeping in mind that about 70% of human behavior is driven by the environment. So yes, figuring out how an individual ticks and what their strengths and areas of growth are, might be as a, as a person, as, a, as an athlete is important. And the culture that you're bringing them into matters significantly. And so it's also trying to find the people that are going to be the best fits for the culture that you've created. And I think part of that can be um, not just asking the players questions, but even asking yourself as an organization or as a, as a team, what are the things that we do well? Like, what are the things like we're really good at developing X or Y or Z, whatever those things are, because those might help influence the type of players that you look for, where it's, okay, this player, this might not be a strength of his, but it's a strength of ours in what how we develop people. You know, and I think being able to understand both sides to that is, it's important. Um, and then I think as far as as questions um, I have a, one of our colleagues who's in middle skills, he, he always says like the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. And so when you find those attributes and characteristics that you value and that you're looking for, asking questions that allow them to reveal past experiences, stories in particular, or that reveal those behaviors, I think is really important, you know? And so many athletes that get to the highest level without overcoming some adversity right and so asking them you know tell me about a time when when you failed tell me about a time when you had to overcome you know some obstacle whatever it might be i think those questions are ultimately shaped by by those attributes um again we talked about awareness earlier um a a favorite a good question is you know if something were to keep you from being a major league baseball player what would it be you know and you allow them to reveal uh potentially where where in their past history have things gone off course for them what could be some of those things and again sometimes you hear answers where maybe that's not the most authentic or or maybe it's Um, some are certainly better than others, but I I think it gives you some insight into those individuals. So, um, all that to say, I think identifying those characteristics, knowing also what you do well from a culture development standpoint, and then, um, structuring your kind of selection process around those things to me is, is kind of an important step in that area.
1: No, this is really good. I'm just taking a ton of notes because yeah. I, I was going to ask you about adversity because that's a question I get from every single NFL scout that comes through um, because at the end of the day, you are going to have setbacks or failures. And um, that's just part of being a professional athlete or a college athlete for that matter. Um, I kind of want to take a step back and let you talk about somebody who has played a real pivotal role. In the, in the whole mental training space and in your life particularly, um, Ken Revisa, you know, worked with the Cubs, helped them get to World Series. He, you know, was your grad school professor. Um, he was described by Thomas Listella as an expert listener. And then there's this one quote that I had to bring up to you. And I just want to get your reaction. Anthony Rizzo said, he did a really good job of being available at all times. When you talk to him, it was great. You let whatever you want off your chest, life, baseball, anything, you just talk to him. He's always there, always happy, always smiling. What's your reaction to that? And who was Ken, you know, revisit to you? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I think those
0: initial descriptors are are certainly very accurate. Um, you know, I think Ken, Ken was extremely unique in a lot of ways. He was the best of the best in kind of our profession and in this craft. Um, It's probably, again, when people ask me the things that I value, like I mentioned earlier, asking quality questions, a lot of that is rooted in what I saw from him. You know, his ability to ask a question and then be totally immersed in the person on the other side's answer. and and be a sounding board. I think that's, that's a lot of what not only in mental skills, but in coaching is really important for some players at times is having a sounding board and, um, having some, knowing that people are in your corner. And, And I think going back to your point earlier about adversity and, um, you know, one of the things that we know with like resilience is you have to have a really strong kind of social support or are having a really strong social support and community around you is one of those protective factors that help with resilience. And so I saw that a lot with Ken Um, you know, there's, there's countless good stories of things that he would say, you know, he had a way of um, I think uh, I say this a lot that he didn't just speak sports psychology. Like he spoke the mental game, of, of life, mental game of, of baseball, mental game of performance. He had a way of, I think, articulating things in a way that um, really resonated for people and made things sticky. And and I think that's, that's a huge part of coaching again, because sometimes message sent isn't always message received, you know? And and I think he, he was extremely exceptional at, um, at communicating in a way where people, not only felt heard and listened to but also he he could keep things as um, simple as can be and yet extremely practical and 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 valuable so yeah all those descriptors I think are spot on yeah
1: it's this is really cool uh, to, to read about the impact he had on so many different people that that are still working MLB today and you know we've kind of already kind of gotten a little bit into the weeds as far as like Tactics and how you react to stuff, and kind of your philosophy with the Diamondbacks. But looking back at this last year in COVID, uh, you know a lot of people thrived in, in the um, in the bubble world and and being kind of forced to look introspectively, uh, whether that be you know their own kind of discipline at that point in time or their social you know support like you were talking about. Um, and a lot of people struggled and, and struggled in ways that they hadn't before. And I wanted to get your take on what your observations were of your team and your athletes and even your staff as far as maybe what were the commonalities of the people that rose above that adversity and that were able to kind of thrive in that environment. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I think we, we certainly saw kind of a full spectrum, you know, certainly I'd say for the most part, players managed it extremely circumstances um but certainly some far more challenging than others you know i think one of the things that was very cool to see was the resolve and resilience of, of many you know getting creative you know you hear stories of the guy that had to go jump the fence to find a field to throw on or had to you know get milk cartons fill them up and those were his weights you know like just a lot of just in really impressive creativity and resolve that you saw from a lot of people. Um, I think, you know, trying to unpack what goes into that, I think part of it is perspective, you know, like that's, I'm, I'm big on perspective. I I talk about it a lot. I, I think it's the only thing that can change the outcome without changing any of the facts. And last year there was a lot of facts that were not, um, not, uh, easy for a lot of people and it it was ultimately about how are you going to view that opportunity like we had a player um that you know his season basically didn't happen he didn't get to compete last year and you know wasn't invited to kind of our our 60 main group that was training and competing at the major league level and he said it was a wake-up call and he said look i only i had two choices it's like i could either throw a pity party and be upset and, and disappointed about what I was losing, or I could use that time to take a step forward and and to outwork outlast kind of some of those other people that that didn't maybe take as much of a step forward. I think it's a hockey team. Um, I can't remember who it is, but their mantra for quarantine was win the weight. And I really I, like I really like that. Really that. I thought that was really clever. And and again it comes back to you know being a pro athlete like that you may not have been playing every day but you weren't necessarily getting time off you know either like again, 24-7 your choices your decisions are influencing what we're seeing now this season um and so I think I think we kind of saw the whole gamut um from there and I think it was really impressive to see those that viewed it as an opportunity that that didn't Focus on what they were losing, but more or less focused on what opportunities they had for improvement and, and where where they were gaining an opportunity to allocate energy and time that in a traditional season you wouldn't be able to do. So we saw guys get significantly stronger because of all the time they had in the weight room, all of that. So um, yeah, we we kind of saw a really healthy mix, but
1: um, that was certainly something uh, that was fun to witness. And, and on the flip side, um, for the people that, that struggled in your program and even staff members that, that might've struggled, um, what were the ways that kind of y'all fit in and, and tried to meet them where they were at? Yeah, I think
0: it was identifying initially what, what was being lost, which for one, for example, like connection, you know, that's, I think such an, uh, an integral piece of sport is the relationships and, Although it's never been easier to stay connected via social media and digitally, um, I think it's fair to say for most like it's not the same, you know. And and then on top of that, you know, you get into this um, when you have a big chunk of your life and your day to day that normally is occupied by baseball and more probably productive or healthy just habits, if you will you're gonna to look to fill those in other ways. And and unfortunately, I think you see some turn to to other things. You see again you spend way more time on on social media, which social media is very much like gambling, you know, like it's you don't really know what you're gonna get. And and generally it's you're just gambling away your well being pretty much. You know, there's not generally too many instances where you walk away from social media. Um, feeling better at least um, objectively sometimes perceptually people will they'll say they will but reality is as we know that doesn't always have that effect um, from a a bio biological standpoint so um, I think one of the things that we tried to fill in for was connection and create opportunities so with coaches for example I think they had it really hard they had spent you know year after year having their routines of what the season looked like and that was disrupted. So for coaches, a lot of different staff, we created opportunities for them to, to be on calls, to, to develop, to learn with one another. Um, and that was, I think, a big part of our, our kind of day to day. So there were some connections there, some players that they, they used it as a time to get better at mental skills. So, um, you know, it's kind of a combination of trying to again, meet players where they were at. Um, and, and just kind of help them see that with this new allocation of time and energy, you have to continue to be intentional with it. And um, uh, that's
1: that's always a challenge. It, it, with uh, routine disruption, uh, that's something that's, it's going to happen, right? Like we it, even in a non-COVID world, that, that, that can happen. But I really kind of wanted to let you talk about how to make habits sticky and, and how to develop that. If you know, you're, you're a player that is used to just rolling out of bed, you know, 30 minutes before workout. And I know it takes me five minutes to get my, you know, hair fixed, brush my teeth, grab something to eat. I'm getting over there. There's 20 minutes before practice starts and I'm just now in my locker throwing my shoes on. I'm kind of running out to the practice field, kind of half, you know, halfway you know, locked in, you're, you're, you're not dialed in, you're, you're, you haven't given yourself a chance to, you know, get yourself in that right mindset. How do we fix that? How do we approach that? When it comes to like habit development, I think part of it is just
0: understanding what goes into that. Right. And, and I think, um, that's something that's important is distinguishing kind of routines, distinguishing habits, um, there's got to be purpose within it. I I think, um, I think it's, um, I think his name is BJ Fogg. He's created kind of like a habit model and he has a book called tiny habits. And he basically says behavior equals um, motivation times ability times prompt or plus prompt plus ability. So it's, um, I think when you think about those things, Part of how you create habits and you create um, those, those different strategies for yourself is you have to make sure that one, there's motivation there. If not, you got to f- be able to tap into the things that um, what your motivation is. It might not be the activity or the, the task itself, but reminding yourself of why you're doing it in the first place that might be big, bigger than that. I think it's making sure that you know. Sometimes people try. What gets them in trouble is their initial um, habit that they want to start is really difficult, and they don't maybe have the ability, the skills in place yet. You know, I think you see that sometimes with. Um, I'll even say I've experienced that with like physical exercise. Where when I'm at, when I'm consistent in my habits around fitness. My focus is more on consistency than it is intensity. So for a long time, I used to be, I need to get like three workouts in for the week, but I need to make those really good workouts, you know, longer, really high intensity, get the most out of it. What I found is that when I work out for a lesser period of time and I have more high frequency type workouts or, you know, with maybe less intensity, for me, that's actually where my ability level. Probably, I probably get more out of that. So, I think uh, being able to recognize that, and then the the prompt is kind of like you always. It helps to have a cue. Like it helps to have something that triggers that us to act on that thing. So, I think those are some of the the ingredients, if you will. I would say of of developing some habits and you know just learning like if you're the person that sets a lot of alarms, right. And it's right by your bed, like put it the other side of the room, right. So you got to physically get up and get going, you know, set out your, your gym clothes the night before. Um, there's, there's little things start thinking about how you can shape again, your environment around you to maybe make those decisions easier. It ultimately comes down to decisions a lot of times and, the easier you can make those decisions. I think the easier it can be for you to um, to make quality choices and ultimately produce quality habits.
1: Yeah. And the, the other thing that I wanted to kind of get your take on and kind of just to follow up on really being intentional and self-aware of where I'm making those mistakes. Okay. I don't wake up on time. So I set extra alarms, but it's right next to me, so I'm still going to hit the snooze button, so I'm going to move it. Um, there, there's a little bit of the observation versus judging mentalities that, that we're all very, very prone to. I am, any, anybody is, if they're honest with you. How do we move away from maybe taking the result of what's happened and shift that towards an observation of it and saying, okay, this is where we we stepped wrong. Okay, I'm gonna rework my process. How do we get to that place? Yeah, so
0: I, I really like what you said there. I think part is is learning able learning to distinguish um, kind of those objective thoughts versus those subjective thoughts. So, for example, there's there's the event that takes place, but then there's the story we created about the event right and and being able to differentiate those two I think is a really important piece to um improving kind of your your, the 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 self-judgment that is such a default for most of us like we're a lot of us are very self-critical and and there's some value to that right Um, it can help propel us it can put things in perspective it causes us to work harder, all those things. And it can also be a limiter. It can be a trap. And so I think part of that. Is, and so something that we do a lot of is, is like mindfulness and, and meditation. I think it's a way, um, you know, to quote the Urban Meyer, right. Football coach, he talks about E plus R equals O in order to have a more productive response. It's helpful if you can create space there, right? Our immediate reaction, a lot of times, might be creating a story about something, but it's a response generally is um, there's usually space there and we've, we start to see it more objectively. And so I think uh, mindfulness is one way. I don't think it's the only way, but I think it's one way that you can do that because I think when it, the other thing it benefits is. When you're trying to create change, you can change outcomes, you can change your process, you can change your identity. And I think part of effective habit development is learning how do you reshape your identity. And a lot of that identity is wrapped into the stories that we tell ourselves. And so when you become aware of those stories that you tell yourself, I think it gives you a little bit more freedom and acknowledgement of, what type of narrative do you actually want to um, to create? So an example might be um, somebody that says, oh, I'm a bad test taker. Well, that's basically, you're saying that's the story you've created about, and that again, filters into your identity. You start to think that, yeah, no, I truly am a bad test taker. And that versus, you know, I'm having the thought that I'm a bad test taker. It, that latter creates a little bit more distance and it's versus saying i'm x or whatever that might be you start to to create some distance and some new perspective around it so i think being mindful of that um the the kind of that internal dialogue that we all have right it's kind of the i'll say it's kind of like that audio track that's always playing in each of our lives you know just Becoming aware of that, I think, is a really key piece to to not only habit formation, but also um, creating your identity. And again, those two things, habits and identity, are very much tied together as well.
1: This is really good stuff. I I appreciate you taking time because um, especially I, I understand that you're in such a busy time of the year. And I guess the last question that I wanted to ask. You know we kind of touched on some pre performance stuff we touched on some mindset training uh, you know dealing with covid what what would you how would you kind of define or detail um what resets are and centering in performance because that's a little bit different than gearing ourselves for performance yeah so i i, I resets
0: i think again we we talked about routines a little bit ago to me i think that's where resets come into play to some extent is is understanding so what gets used a lot in baseball for example is you hear the term can you slow the game down you know that's when guys the game gets fast for them and it's not just the game being fast physically but it's it's mentally right and and football is a great example where when things speed up on you in football, yes, there's the physical side of it, but it's also because there's so much information that you have to process. And when you're trying to attend to multiple things at once, it's going to speed up on you. Um, it, your brain's going to have a difficult time being able to, to process all of that. And so I think resets, first off, it's important to understand what are the situations and moments in performance Things speed up on me, or when I might need a reset. Um, for again, for each person, this could look a little bit different. Um, it could be, you know, an umpire or a ref making a bad call. It could be when I make a mistake. It could be um, in between plates when I'm on the sidelines or I'm in the dugout, et cetera. I think one, it's just being aware of what are those moments. That are important for each person, and then two, it's finding something that that resonates for you that you utilizes a reset. So, for example, um, in baseball, a lot of people use like a visual kind of reset. They have like a visual cue, I like that a lot because one, it's a way to kind of use like a grounding technique to kind of center your focus back to the present, um, and so baseball very popular one is they look at the left foul pole or the foul pole the tip of it because there's always going to be a foul pole and there's always going to be an end and so it gives you uh kind of an anchor to center your focus the other side of it too is it gets your focus external it gets your focus outside of what you're feeling what's going on inside your own head and it puts it elsewhere and and i think that's important because there's a healthy body of research that shows in the vast majority of athletic contexts, when you have more external focus generally you perform better um you're and so i think the visual cue can assist with that i think a physical cue might be um in baseball we have players that that they wipe um you know the the mound in you know in between pitches maybe like if you're not happy with a pitch wipe them out and you clean it it's like you're you're erasing or you're letting go of that last particular pitch and you're shifting your focus on to the next one um then there's you know breathing again is a very popular one and so there's physical there's visual and then there's verbal too and I think using kind of cues that you might tell yourself um I think Russell Wilson is is very outspoken about this he has mantras if you will that he tells himself uh, not only in preparation for games, but sometimes during games. And so I I think those are types of things that can be helpful resets for people. And then the last thing I'd say on it is regardless of what reset you use, there has to be purpose behind it. You can't just do it because, Oh, I I think if I do this, it's going to get me a hit. No, it's like you're doing those things because it's shifting your focus back to something that like the task at hand or shifting your focus back to the thing that you can control and that's really what's most important um in kind of that whole process
1: so more or less shifting your focus to the present moment versus the outcome that you desire
0: exactly yeah exactly in the moment any reset it's it's about getting you back to the present right the present the present wins you know peak performance only lives in the present all of that like it's about how do you get back to this moment um and and that's yeah that's the name of the game it's uh, we we spend a lot of time talking about focus because we think it's it's the ultimate driver of high performance and the more you can be intentional with it um and thankfully train it too which we talked about at the beginning but um at the end of the day you have to be able to focus on the right thing at the right time um, in any setting. And so for us, some resets can be a helpful tool to use to get back to that present when it gets um, hooked past or
1: future. I, I really appreciate you definitely want to stay in contact when we head into the off season and maybe get you back on the show and, and talk some more. Where can our listeners find up all your work, both, kind of your social media outlets and also MVP mindset, uh, your consultant company.
0: Yeah. So I, uh, I'm probably more active on social media than I should be. Um, but you can find me, um, on, on kind of most of, I guess the platforms Twitter, um, it's at, at MVP underscore mindset. I think, um, Instagram is like MVP underscore mind or something like that. I don't even know. I don't do Instagram as much, but um, LinkedIn. So any of those, I think um, I'm always, for those that want to reach out and, and discuss things in more detail, I would love to. So um, any of those are, are great. Um, yeah, I do have a website just more, more so than anything, just to, to kind of share any of the resources that have been a part of things like these types of conversations. So, um, you know, I'm always, it's always good to, to hear from folks who, who do get a chance to listen. And I, I love feedback, whether you you like it or whether you're like, I, I can stand this or, or I totally disagree, like I love those. So, um, you know, if any of those feelings uh, somewhere in between any of that come up for you, those who are listening would love to continue conversations.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you again and uh, have a great rest of the season. Best of luck. All right. Yeah. Appreciate it, Alex. Thanks again for having me.